Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Martin Grace, Professor of Risk Insurance and Healthcare Management at Temple University, and Jung Xu Lao, Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Mississippi. We'll be discussing their paper, The Market for Model Laws, The Diffusion of NAIC's Model Laws, which they co-authored with Charlotte Alexander, Professor of Law and Analytics at Georgia State University. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Martin, Jung Xu, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. I was really excited to see this paper and to have some more insurance coverage here on the Business Scholarship Podcast. And I think this will be a paper that speaks to a lot of different types of listeners and a lot of different interests that listeners might have. But before we get into the paper and your research questions and empirical findings, I'd like to maybe level set a little bit. I wonder if you could talk about the landscape and the basic structure of insurance regulation in the U.S., who is in charge of regulating the business of insurance in the United States? And how does that process of regulation, in broad relief at least, how does that process of regulation work? Insurance is regulated differently than almost every other industry in the United States. It is really a state-regulated business. And it was that way from the foundation, the small insurance companies that were set up. But up until after the Civil War, it was you know, solely a state business. And then after the Civil War, the country started to actually move together a little bit. And a New York insurance agent went to Virginia and tried to sell a policy and got in trouble. And this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's titled Paul versus Virginia. And the Supreme Court at the time said, of course, insurance isn't commerce, it's local. And as a result, only the state has authority over the regulation of this particular contract. So it wasn't until World War II we had the Supreme Court revisit this particular arrangement in federalism. And because insurance pricing, insurance solvency was like, it was hard hard to figure out. There wasn't strong actuarial mathematics that helped us understand the pricing risk. And so what state regulators like to do was keep a lot of money in the bank, if you will. So there would be relatively few or zero insolvencies. But kept prices high. And the states didn't know how to do this very well. So they allowed the industry to organize rate-setting bureaus. And these rate-setting bureaus were essentially fixing prices. But states thought they could do this under the Paul versus Virginia framework. But the Department of Justice brought an antitrust lawsuit in 1944, and that went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court essentially said this was interstate commerce, and the federal Sherman Act does apply. That got the states all upset because they've had, what I would say, a robust regulatory system in place for quite some time. And Congress passed a law titled the McCarran-Ferguson Act about a year later that returned, for the most part, the status quo. Now, given that state regulation background, the states didn't act in a vacuum. They talked to each other in the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which dates, I think, from like 1876, was an association of state regulators. It's not a governmental organization itself, but it is a clearinghouse for ideas. The goal was to help insurance commissioners with common problems, training, best practices, and the subject of our talk today, model laws. 
So this is really, there have been some modifications to this sort of structural arrangement between the federal and state government. And every couple of years, maybe 10 years or so, it comes up again. But it has been working quite well for many people for the last 200 and some odd years. So that's a view of the federal state allocation of insurance regulation. It sounds like it's almost entirely on the state level. Within states, how does insurance regulation work? Who are the players? Who are these insurance commissioners? Are they appointed by the governor or the legislature? Are they elected? Are they hired by some board of insurance? How does the intrastate regulation of insurance work as a matter of political economy and government structure? So we have a mix of the 51 states. I think there are 11 that are directly elected and the remaining are appointed by the governor. And there may be a state that actually has the legislature has a role in the appointment of the commissioner. But for the most part, they're either elected through a general election or they're appointed by the governor and serve at the pleasure of the governor. The state has an administrative agency in almost every state that is either called the Commissioner of Insurance or the Department of Insurance, or it's part of a larger department that covers financial regulation. So there's still some state banks and there's still some state securities regulation. And so perhaps like New York, all the financial regulation falls under one department, but there is a head of financial regulation that's focused on insurance. That's the mix throughout the country. So this association of the insurance commissioners representing the 50 states plus D.C., this National Association of Insurance Commissioners, NAIC, it's been around for a long time. It's not a governmental body, but it serves a coordinating function between the states. Could you talk about the purpose that it serves in terms of coordination? Why is coordination necessary between the states or why is it desirable between the states? And with that, could you tell me a little bit about its work in producing model laws and what the motivation behind those model law projects is? So there's two different strands here. So one is every insurance commissioner or commission is going to have relatively similar problems. They're going to have an occasional bankruptcy and there's no state bankruptcy law. And the federal law for bankruptcy does not apply to insurance because of the McCarran-Ferguson Act. So how do states resolve the occasional bankruptcy? So they have to develop their own laws. By looking across states, NEIC can help figure out what the best practice is. Every state's going to have the same particular problem on occasion and can develop some notion of what best practices are. So that's one motivation for using the NEIC as a information provider for the states. The other one is that an insurance commissioner's action in one state might actually have an effect on the customers of another state. And so this intrastate closure is something the NEIC also wants to work with. And to that extent, when you think about a large insolvency in California and the insurance company that goes insolvent as customers in Washington State, Nevada, New Mexico, Kansas, and Massachusetts. And each of those state regulators has a duty and obligation to protect its customers. So we could have essentially a gang up on this insurance company going bankrupt and fighting it out for each state's individual customers. So this externality, if you will, of one state's business having an effect in other states has to be resolved in some way. And so 
Recently, in the last 30 years, the NEIC has developed a set of model laws that focus on when would the... So we have a, an insurance company that's domiciled in California, and it operates in another state. So when can the commissioner of the operating state intervene? This has happened as a result of, I guess, congressional pressure due to the insolvencies that occurred in the late 1980s and early 1990s for the NEIC to get its act together. They did two things. They developed a certification program so that every state who passes the certification program, comedy among the states gets promoted. So the Massachusetts Insurance Commissioner doesn't have to beat up the California Insurance Commissioner because he knows that California, it knows the California Commissioner is doing a good job because it's certified by the NAIC is doing a good job. This is a particularly important interstate aspect of NAIC's model laws or model rulemaking. So this is the two things are basically one internal and one external. Your paper focuses on the adoption or the diffusion of these model laws. Can you tell me a little bit about your research questions for this paper and what motivated those questions as you were going into this project? Sure. So let me first introduce some background of this project. So this project started when I was a PhD student of Marty. Marty is an expert of tort reforms. And in one seminar course Marty taught, I worked on term project about how or whether states learn from each other in adopting tort reforms. And after class, Marty came to me saying that, oh, in addition to studying what affects state decision in adopting tort reforms, you might want to take a look of NIC model law. And I, at that time, I had zero knowledge of NIC model law. So I started to do some research about NIC model law. So the first NAIC model law was adopted in 1917, which is 106 years old from now. And so far, the NAIC has adopted 195 model laws. But if we take a look of the literature, we would say the literature on NAIC model law is very sparse. And you could barely find any comprehensive discussion of how those model laws are developed and how the model laws spread from the NAIC to states. And one very interesting fact is that not all the NAIC model laws are widely adopted by states. Some model laws have been adopted by 50 states, while some model laws were barely adopted by any state. So on average, each NIC model laws was adopted by 20 states. So to researchers like us, it's very natural to ask, why are some model laws adopted by many states, while some other model laws are not that popular? And also, we find some states who like to adopt the law earlier than other states. So can we find some common leaders in the model law adoption? So this is a major motivation behind our project. Regarding the research question, we have two major research questions. The first one is, from the first NAIC model law adoption to the present, can we see some general pattern in the diffusion of the 195 model laws? Specifically, can we see some states that are more active in adopting the model laws than other states? And 
Do states follow the NAIC directly to adopt model laws, or there are some leading states that other states would like to follow to adopt model law? So the first question is mainly about the general pattern in the diffusion of model law, and we have another major question, which is. Can we find some common determinants of state decision of adopting NAIC model laws? We know states always have their own reason to adopt or not adopt model laws, but probably there are some common factors that affect states' decision in adopting model laws. So these are the two major questions that we would like to answer in our paper. Could you tell me a little bit about the empirical strategy that you pursued to answer and to address those two research questions around the adoption of NIC model laws? How did you go about answering those questions? So we first would like to study if there is some general pattern in the diffusion of the model laws. To answer this question, we first study which state is more active in adopting model laws. We create willingness to adopt score, which is basically the ratio of number of adoptions that a state undertakes in a year divided by the total number of available NAIC model laws. And we find that New Hampshire, Nebraska, and Illinois are the states with the highest willingness to adopt score. In comparison, D.C., New York, and New Mexico are the three states with the lowest willingness to adopt score. The willingness to adopt score is good. It tells us which state is more willing to adopt model laws, but it does not answer another very interesting question. That is. Who follows whom to adopt NIC model laws? So it is possible that states follow the NIC directly. After the NIC adopts model law, then states would all adopt model law. It is also possible there are some leading states that other states would like to follow. So in fact, we do not know the exact answer unless we are the decision maker at the time. However, we can infer who follows whom. Based on the timing of their repeated model law adoption decision using a machine learning algorithm called NetInf, so this machine learning algorithm was initially used to study who copies whom in news media. For instance, does New York Times follow Washington Post, or does Washington Post follow New York Times? Some news post. Then this methodology was extended to study policy diffusion. So that's a methodology that we use in this paper. So let me just give you one example. So if New York adopted a specific NIC model law one year before New Jersey, can we say New York is a leader of New Jersey? Probably yes, but it might be just coincidence. However. If we find that New Jersey always adopted model laws a short period after New York adopted model laws, then we should be quite confident to say New York is the inferred leader of New Jersey. So this machine learning algorithm tests who leads whom based on the repeated model law adoption decisions. 
And then using the NetInf algorithm, we create the leader and follower tie based on NIC's and state's adoption information of the model laws. And if we combine all the leader and follower tie, we will be able to latent diffusion network. We call it NIC diffusion network. The node in the network, either states or the NIC, and the arrow in the network demonstrate leading and following relationship. So if a node is the center of the network, it means that this node, either state or NIC, plays a key role in the model law diffusion process. And not surprising, the NIC is the center of the network. But if we study the dynamics of the network we find that NIC was not always the center. Back to 1940s, NIC was not the center of the network. At the time, it was some state that played a more important role in leading other states to adopt NIC model laws. But over time, we find that NICs plays a more and more important role. And over time, NIC is the center of the NIC model law diffusion network. So this is the first question. And the second question is about, can we find some common factors behind state decision of adopting NIC model laws? To answer that question, in fact, I interviewed several NIC employees and a prior state commissioner. I asked the commissioner, what affects your decision and your state's decision in adopting those NIC model laws? And then I aggregate the information and find that there are three major type of factors that might affect state adoption decision. They are the content of the model law, the state level factors, and state peers effects. So then we run regression studying the state decision of adopting an IC model law on the three type of factors. So this is empirical methodologies that we used in this paper to study NIC policy diffusion. Thank you for that overview of the methods that you pursued in this paper. I wonder if you could maybe highlight some of your key findings about follower versus leader relationships and about some of the determinants uh, at the state level of NAIC policy adoption. And do you have any intuitions or theories for the mechanisms of these findings? What leads one state to be a leader versus a follower of another? What motivates, what drives these determinants as having some effect, impact on a state's decision whether to adopt or not? Adopt. There are three major type of factors that might affect the IC model law adoption decision. They are the content of the model law and the state level factors and state peers decision. The first one is the content of the model law, and we believe this is probably the most important determinant of state decision of adopting model laws. Regarding the content of the model law, we ask first, what is the main topic of the model law? Like when legislators or regulators take a look at the model law, they first need to understand the model law and see if the model law is relevant to their state. So we ask, what is the main topic of the model law? And is this model law easy to read or too complicated? Not every legislator has strong insurance background. And... Some model law has 100 pages. So if the model law is very complicated and long, then the willingness to adopt the model law might be relatively low. 
So we use different measures to measure the readability and complexity of model law, and want to know if the model laws and if the state had willingness to adopt the model law would be low when this model law is complicated and difficult to read. And we also ask how many times has this state adopted a related law or relevant law. So legislators are busy. If the state has already adopted some state law similar to an IC model law, then the state might pay attention to some other important regulations and do not adopt a new model law. So we call it state fatigue. We believe that. If the state has adopted some state law that is highly related to NIC model law, then the state's willingness to adopt the NIC model law would be low. And we also ask some other questions, such as: Does the model law have some recent update? Some model laws were developed several decades ago, and they might be outdated. But if the model law has been revised or amended, then the state might be more willing to adopt the model law. So this is some questions that we ask about the content of the model law, and this is the first category of factors that might affect state decision. And the second type of factor that might affect state decision in adopting model laws are state level factors, state level economic, social, or political factors. So we studied the government ideology index. We studied if the state government is divided and how much legislative resource available in the mar in the state and how much resource is available in the state insurance market. How large is the state insurance market? What is the population? What is the GDP in the state? So these are the state level factors, and they are common factors used in policy diffusion literature. And the third type of factor is states' external factors. Do state consider the decision of their geographic or ideological neighbors when they choose to adopt or not to adopt a model law? What we find is that policy difference is, in fact, more important than people difference in NIC model law adoption decisions. We find the nature of the law, which is the content of the law, plays a key role. Model laws with relatively low complexity, addressing topics different from existing state law and haven't been recently revised, are more likely to be adopted by state. In comparison, although we studied several state-level factors, except for the state's ideological orientation, we find little influence of other states' internal political and economical characteristics on adoption decision. So this means policy difference is more important than state or people difference in NIC model law adoption decision. In comparison, we do find a strong external impact as states are likely to follow their geographic or ideological neighbors in adopting NIC model laws. About you, another question you mentioned: Who is a leader? Who is a follower? We do find NIC is a major leaders that leading states to adopt NIC model laws. One thing I'd like to interject at this point is that over time, the NIC back in the 1870s didn't have a big budget or a big staff. Today, 
in over the last 30 years, its budget has increased. Some say too much, but I would say just dramatically in the sense that they can do a lot more things for the states that they couldn't do in the past. And they're funded by the industry. They essentially have to pay money when they submit their annual statement data to the states. They pay a fee and that fee goes to the NAIC. And the NIC uses as a seed pot to do research or to help fund new model law initiatives in the sense of we have the staff, we can help figure out what a good law might look like. So they provide support for those types of activities. But at the same time, the NAIC recognizes that too many model laws aren't necessarily a good thing. So they put a barrier that if you breach the barrier, then we will start to consider the model law and start the process work. So you have to have a number of states interested. You have to have a little bit more than one person saying, I think this is a good idea. Let's start this expensive process. Are there any implications that this paper has for other regulatory areas? Martin mentioned at the top that states are actively involved in banking regulation and securities regulation and consumer finance regulation. Are there any implications for those other regulatory areas where this kind of 50-state coordination problem might exist or regulatory areas that fall outside of financial regulation? And are there any implications for this paper in the broader policy diffusion literature? The federal government and the interstate commerce power of the federal government are relatively powerful. But with the exception of maybe insurance and public utilities, there are very few areas of commerce that aren't touched by some sort of federal regulatory agency. And one might argue that for public utilities that there's FERC, but that regulates interstate transmission of electricity. There is something very much like the NAIC for public utilities. It's called the National Association of Regulated Utility Commissioners. So it has a similar role, but I think its role is a lot narrower. So I would say that for outside of financial services, it's really just public utilities. Within financial services, as I mentioned before, it's state securities that are exempt under the Securities Exchange Act from registration. There are probably state banks that are completely regulated by the state. But even there, the federal government through the FDIC has got its finger on state banks now. So the true areas of left are really just, I think, in insurance. And even if you look at banks, the number of state laws, model laws for state banks is relatively small. So I would think that insurance is, as a industry, is the, the big one. Now, topics that are shareable across states, just think about the UCC or the Model Business Corporation Act. It's not that the NEIC is the only organization out there promoting model laws. It's the biggest, most influential one, I think, for an industry. But the uniform laws on contracts and other types of state-specific jurisdictions like the states and trusts, probate corporations, things like that, they have their own people who support that. And we find that policy difference is more important than people's difference in model law adoption decisions. So for other model law developers, not just in insurance industry, we find that if the model law developers would like to write model laws that are relatively easy to read and interpret, then they are relatively more likely to be adopted by the state. Like when we read model laws, we find, oh, they are very long and some are quite complicated. If they can be relatively easy to read, then the chance that it can be adopted could be higher. 
And regarding the implication for policy diffusion literature, I would like to say probably the more focus should be on the content of the policy. There have been hundreds, probably thousands of papers on policy diffusion starting from the 1960s, and majority of papers focused on state-level factors such as economic, political, social factors. But in our paper, we in fact find the content of the policy or the content of the law plays the most important role. This is some field that other policy diffusion researchers could pay more attention to in their future research. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? The main takeaway from this paper is that. The NIC does play an increasingly central role in the diffusion of NIC model laws. States do follow the NIC directly to adopt NIC model laws, and we find that those popular NIC model laws are those not too complicated to interpret, different from existing laws in the state, and are recently updated. And we、we'll、also find that states are willing to adopt the law if they find that their geographic neighbors adopted, the neighbors in the same NIC zone adopted, and states that are ideologically similar adopted. So these are the key takeaways from this paper. Our guests today have been Martin Grace, professor of risk insurance and healthcare management at Temple University, and Junxu Lao, assistant professor of finance at the University of Mississippi. We've discussed their paper, "The Market for Model Laws: The Diffusion of NIC's Model Laws," which they co-authored with Charlotte Alexander, professor of law and analytics at Georgia State University. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Martin Junxue, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our research. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings dot com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Thank you.